Hello friends and Shalom. This is Tom with Truth Ignited Ministry and today I'm bringing you part two of the message titled Keys to Real Revival. In the last segment of this study I talked about some of the foundational elements of the Christian concept of revival and in this portion of the study I want to begin by looking at an inquiry I made into the reported spiritual outbreak at the Asbury University in Kentucky. Now let me just state that I'm not picking on them and I'm not judging or criticizing them. I want to use some interaction I had with them and some knowledge about what went on there as an illustration towards determining what could be real and what could be maybe not so real revival. In the midst of the reported spiritual outbreak at the Asbury University and elsewhere, someone mentioned that they thought the students were Torah positive, kept the Sabbath, followed the food laws, things like that. And, and I felt this seemed a little odd as this was not um, a messianic school or anything like that. So I wanted to find out what the deal was. As such, I found an online discussion group and proceeded to ask a couple of very simple questions. The first question I asked was, I've been told that the students of this revival keep the biblical Sabbath day, which would coincide with sunset Friday to sunset Saturday on modern calendars, and that they follow the Torah, which would include things like keeping the Leviticus 11 food laws and celebrating the biblical feast days. Is this true? The second question I asked was, if the response to the first question is not true, is there any indication that this revival is leading people to follow these aspects of scripture, scripture outlined in the Torah? Has there been any leading of the students to pursue these areas of Torah keeping within their faith practice? Now, these are the types of replies that I received from those implying that they were an active part of this event. The first one, it says, Asbury University closely aligns with Wesleyan holiness doctrine. We don't follow the ceremonial or civil laws set forth for the Jewish people during the Old Testament. This is a longer one, this next one said, the fruits of revival don't include following the dietary or ceremonial laws given to the Israelites. They do include spiritual healings, conviction of sin, peace, true worship, zeal to share with others, repentance, increase in faith, commitments to Christ, etc. If you're judging revivals based on the adherence to customs, not normative to a part of the Christian's conviction, since it was dealt with in part in the Jerusalem Council in Acts, and more fully later in Corinthians, then you'll be disappointed in this revival. If you're looking for a genuine repentance that transforms our nature to become more like Christ, infecting our heart for the love of God and neighbor through obedience of the word and the testimony of our mouth, this revival is for you. No, no, hold up a second here. There's a lot wrong with that statement. And I, I'm not going to get into it right now, but this person went back and forth between, you know, we're, we're not about the Jewish laws, those Jewish laws, but, but we're all about obedience. And, you know, this stuff was dealt with in Acts. Well, I've got a whole message on the Acts 15 
that shows how Christians get that totally wrong. And we could talk about what's in Corinthians. You know, Paul in Corinthians, my goodness, in Corinthians, Paul says, he, he highlights the feast days, the, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread specifically, and says, let us keep the feast. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17, he says, touch no unclean thing. You know, he's quoting Isaiah, which was a reference to the food laws. So this person is saying, oh yeah, these things were dealt with in Corinthians, and yet Corinthians tells us the exact opposite of what this person is saying. Let, let, let me go on. The, the next the next reply I got back, it said, if you go back under the law of Moses, make sure you are keeping all 613 commandments. Don't pick and choose. You know, I talked about that in the previous message. In answer to your questions, another person says, no and no. I grew up in Wilmore, home of Asbury, attended Asbury, and worked at Asbury, as did both my parents, grandparents, brother, and extended family. I can confidently say this. Well, you know, great. I mean, it sounds like this person knows what they're talking about and has fully confirmed that they are 100% against these aspects of the Torah. And then here's one. It says, I recommend Acts 15. Um, again, Acts 15. I recommend Acts 15. That should get you up to speed with what the rules of the game are for Gentiles. And then this one is, is just a different comment that I received and, you know, I kind of particularly enjoyed this one. Maybe go for yourself and see how the Spirit of God is moving. You know, like as if everybody in the world can just go there. It's not only Asbury Revival has broken out, it's happening in multiple places. You should be shouting that God is moving in, on our youth and people are being healed, delivered, and filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want more than that, then maybe you need to pray about what you're questioning this, why you're questioning this move of God. First of all, I did not question the move of God. I asked two questions about whether something was something biblical was happening in the so-called movement of God and whether or not, as Ezekiel 36, 27, we've been looking at says that the people were being led to or caused to follow these aspects of scripture. Now look, clearly these are not the kind of replies that would come from a Torah positive group or a, a group where, again, as we've noted in this study already, from Ezekiel 36, 27, God's spirit of holiness is causing people to walk in his law. I would also note that I received no response from anyone claiming to be a part of the event at the Esbury University that was in any way positive toward living by the Torah or even expressing an interest, such as asking a question with an inquiring or curious tone about these portions of scripture. You know, if scripture is true and the Holy Spirit was leading people and causing people to go towards the Torah as scripture says is supposed to happen, then logically I should have at least had a couple of people say, hey, you know, what you're saying is interesting. I, I want to know about that. Now, again, I must continue to emphasize that this teaching is not about a particular group or a spe specific spiritual breakout. 
I'm merely referring to this particular event again because it is current, so people will have it fresh in their mind, and it is relevant to the study. In that I inquired of these people who were there and received some idea from at least those who responded regarding their views about God's commandment during what was reported to be an outpouring of the Spirit. As previously mentioned in the first part of this message, there are a number of great works by revivalists of a generation past that are worth looking at. While, again, I may not, as a Torah-positive follower of the biblical Yeshua, agree with the totality of the theology of these preachers, their words, especially when read from a pronomian perspective, provide the fuel that sparked the revivals they led. If we're to establish anything that could be genuine revival, after having looked at the only possible biblical basis for a revival, primarily through the reforms under King Hezekiah and King Josiah, it is essential to look at these important messages. As I've previously stated, from one of the most famous revival sermons in history is from what is called the First Great Awakening, and is titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Allow me to read but a brief excerpt from this message. This is what Edwards had to say during the first great um, awakening. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or a loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in, this, in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is of ours. You have offended him infinitely more than you than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. You were, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and to burn it asunder. 
and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Man, could you imagine, now look, could you imagine the reaction that such words would garner if they were delivered in a modern day revival, especially one scheduled in advance by a progressive, hyper-grace type of a church. Yet these are the very kinds of words that sparked revival in the past. Consider also these words from Charles Finney, probably the most notable figure of the Second Great Awakening out of his famous book, Lectures on Revival. A revival of true Christianity presupposes a falling away. Almost all true Christianity in the world has been produced by revivals because God has found it necessary to use humanity's excitability to produce powerful awakenings among them before he can lead them to obey. People are spiritually sluggish, so many things lead their mind away from God and oppose the influence of the gospel that God must arouse excitement in them until they, the wave rises so high that it sweeps away all obstacles. Before they will obey, people must thoroughly be awakened. Only then will they overcome counteracting forces. Not that exciting feeling is spirituality, it is not but it is excited worldly desires, appetites, and feelings that prevent true Christianity. The human will is, in a sense, enslaved by fleshly and worldly desires. It is therefore necessary for God to awaken people to a sense of guilt and danger and thus produce an opposite excitement of feeling and desire. This counterfeeling breaks the power of worldly desire and leaves the will free to obey God. While the previous segment from Edwards focused on the impending wrath toward the sinner, Finney here places an emphasis on obedience. As noted when I shared about the reforms of Hezekiah and Josiah, any true Bible-based revival must include a return to full covenant obedience to the Torah. Finney also addresses worldliness, and 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then there's Leonard Ravenhill, highly, a highly regarded book that he wrote called Why Revival Tarries. And, and it's heralded by many as one of the greatest works on the topic of revival ever written. And, and here we find... One of my personal favorite quotes, actually, where the preacher uttered these words. L listen to this. One of these days, some simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it. Then the rest of us will be embarrassed. We have adopted the convenient theory that the Bible is a book to be explained, whereas First and foremost, it is a book to be believed, and after that, to be obeyed. You know, 
th that really does sum up the matter quite nicely, actually. I've dealt with a lot of people who come across as being well-studied and appear to be intelligent, but oftentimes the dumbest things I ever hear in my life come from the most educated people. In contrast, those who simply have a heart for God and His ways with a desire to follow Yeshua and the Bible are typically the most receptive to the basic truths of Scripture, including, when shown, aspects of the Torah that the majority of Christians have been conditioned to believe no longer matter. As Ravenhill notes, it's that simple person who just reads, believes, and obeys the Bible that will completely wreck popular religion. Now, while these great historical works and many others from revivalist preachers offer a lot to think about in regard to what revival was in the past and what it really should be, there is another particularly new work that I want to turn to real quick. Now, I think this book is every bit on the same level as these great works of past revivalists, and this book is Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. I was so impressed by this book for that for a time, I bought copies of it and gave them to people because there are so many profound statements in it that really do have that same revivalist tone. Consider these words from the author. The more I study the Gospels, the more I am convinced that those of us who live in the United States have a warped view of what it means to be a Christian. It is for that reason our churches are in the state they are in. A warped view of Christianity can only result in a warped church. But what if we started over? What if we bulldozed what we have currently called church and started over with actual Christians? Now, the word Christian does not mean the same thing today that it meant in the first century. The key to seeing this is in the suffix I-A-N. In the Greek language, the word was Christianos, with the suffix Ianos, I-A-N-O-S, in Greek denoting someone as a slave to that which it was attached. So the word was acknowledging those who live in a manner that was enslaved to Messiah, which is the Greek word Christos. This obviously fits with the introduction given by the apostles where they often announce themselves as a slave to Messiah Yeshua. In our modern English-speaking culture, however, the parallel suffix I-A-N is loosely used to associate someone or something with the word to which it is attached. In modern Christian religion, you're generally regarded as a Christian just so long as you claim you believe Jesus is the Christ. There's really no demand on a person's faith and, and there's certainly no mandate towards obedience. You know, obedience is good, but you know, as long as you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then, then you're a Christian today. But what if, as Chan suggests, we were able to wipe the slate clean, wreck the entire system of churchianity, and start fresh with people who, as 
Ravenhill said, pick up the Bible, read it, believe it, and obey it. Imagine what would happen if people decided that they were fed up with popular religion, fed up with the totally unbiblical ways of modern day Americanized Christianity, tired of the hype of mega churches and tired of the scams of so-called Christian television and the con artists running them, tired of it all and determined to return to the Bible alone as the foundation of our faith. 1 Timothy 4.13 says to devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. This was a standard practice of the faith in the first century. In the synagogues on the Sabbath day, the people gathered to hear the public reading of the Torah and the prophets. And this is exactly what Paul would have been referring to in this passage. They did not have church services. There was no such thing as Christian churches at this time in history. They met in three places, the temple during the feast days and other significant times, the, syn the synagogues every biblical Sabbath day, which again is sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. There's no other time that you can properly biblically label the Sabbath day and daily from house to house. Those were the places they met. There was no such thing as a Christian church that held services on Sundays. In fact, apart from the vague statements about meeting daily, Sunday is never once, once highlighted as a specific day of meeting in the entire Bible. Think about that for a moment. Just ask yourself, how biblical is Christianity today really when so little of its standard practice matches with Scripture? You know, if you study the etymology of the word church, there, there is proposed a possible influence of a particular Welsh word that means citadel, fortress, or stronghold. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful through God for the tearing down of strongholds. Now, I'm not proposing we stretch one possible etymological influence of the word church into a wild conspiracy theory or anything like that. But isn't it interesting that we have statements like that of Chan Suggesting that, suggesting what could happen if we tear down the stronghold of counterfeit Christianity and seek to rebuild with something that actually is biblical. Whether we call it revival or anything else, if it's the real thing, it will lead us back to covenant obedience to the Torah. Ezekiel 36, 27 and Revelation 14, 12 must be foundational to any genuine movement where we are through covenant faith caused to walk in the Torah and become those holy ones who follow both the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Look, in the Bible, Satan is called the lawless one, and I talk about this all the time. 
Lawlessness and sin are defined in 1 John 3, 4 as breaking, transgressing, violating the Torah. We first encounter him, Satan, in Genesis 3 where he leads people into believing that they do not need to obey the commandments of God. Incidentally, that first broken commandment resulted resulting in eating something God said not to eat. And today, the masses of Christianity believe that they're free to eat things that God said not to eat. The language indicates that this event took place on the Sabbath day with Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden, the place where they were assigned to work. So even before they ate that forbidden fruit, they were already, it seems, pushing the limits of God's law at the very least. Now, Scripture doesn't say that they were working in the garden, but why should they have even been in the midst of their place of work on the Sabbath at all? They shouldn't have been there in the first place. In like manner, the Bible tells us that Yeshua is the righteous one. Deuteronomy 6.25 tells us that it will be counted as righteousness when we do what is commanded by God in the Torah. The first direct message of Yeshua in the gospel is a call to repent, which means to turn from sin. Matthew 1.21 says that the reason his name is Yeshua is because he came to save his people from their sin. And again, sin is breaking the Torah. So the whole reason Yeshua came was to lead people into a Torah-obedient way of living. Titus 2, verses 11 through 12 say, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, training us to deny ungodliness and worldly not desires, and to live in a manner that is self-controlled and righteous and godly in this present age. If you look deeper into this verse, ungodliness and worldly desires are words related to sin, which we have seen means breaking the Torah. And 1 John also, as we've already noted, says we are not to love the world or the things of the world. Then we have righteousness mentioned, which we have just looked at to find that it refers to a Torah-keeping lifestyle. Grace is a big topic in popular Christian religion, but most people believe that grace is given to free us from the law. Here, however, we have the exact opposite being stated, where grace is what frees us from breaking the Torah and then leads us into a Torah-obedient way of life. That's how Paul defines grace here in this passage from Titus chapter 2. It really makes you wonder just how much of the Bible Christianity gets wrong, doesn't it? And, and you know, this is where I need to end this installment, but I'm going to pick up in the next segment of this study with more talk about what grace truly means and what it does not mean. And from there, I'm going to show you exactly where the last 100 years of major moves of God have been leading us. Hey friends, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. If this message has impacted you, please feel free to share, with, share it with others. 
If you're enjoying these teachings, be sure to subscribe and consider becoming a $4.99 or $9.99 monthly partner. If you want to make a larger donation, please contact ministry at truthignited.com. If you're interested in more teachings like this from Truth Ignited Ministry, be sure to check us out at the website at www.truthignited.com and follow Truth Ignited on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll see you next time. Blessings and Shalom.